Church family, we're going to continue to walk through Daniel. And as we do that, I'll just remind us all the question at the core of the book of Daniel for us as believers in followers of Jesus Christ living in a post-New Testament world. The question at the core of Daniel is how do we follow Jesus faithfully when living in exile in a hostile world? What does it look like? How do we do it? And as, as we've moved through, we've, we've seen a core truth about who God is, that God is, in fact, the one true God. He is the sovereign Lord over all history, over what is seen, over what is unseen. And though He allows a kind of freedom in which we as humans make certain kinds of decisions, ultimately His plan holds true. As we walk through, every week's presented us with a different aspect of how we walk faithfully. So as we come to the passage this week, we have, if last week we watched God's patience with a wicked ruler, His patience of dealing with Nebuchadnezzar over what ultimately was a 41-year period, this week we come to the question of, we understand God is patient, but is God still just? Does he ultimately deal with the wickedness and sin that's found in society? And how we answer that question is critical to whether or not we will hold fast to Christ. So I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, I invite you, if you don't have a Bible or forgot yours this morning, please feel free to use the one in the pew back in front of you. The page numbers on the screen will correspond to it. Daniel 5. Now, as we come to Daniel 5, I need to give you a little bit of, of some context and background, because you'll notice the first word in Daniel 5 says, Belshazzar the king, which tells us right off the bat there's been a change. We've got some new characters. We were just dealing with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar, and now Belshazzar. So what's happened? Well, here's what you need to know, church family. From, from the end of Daniel 4 to where we pick up in Daniel 5, it's been 23 years. It's been 23 years. And then here's some things that have happened in that 23 years. Nebuchadnezzar will die after reigning for 43 years. He'll die in 563 BC. Upon his death, his son, Evil Merodach, how'd you like to have that as your name, rules for two years and then gets assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neraglissar. Nereglisser is a governor of the eastern provinces. He was a, a general under Nebuchadnezzar. He marries into the family. After assassinating his brother-in-law, he's going to reign on the throne for four years. Then he's going to die. His son, Labishi Marduk, another great name for you, rules for nine months. And then he will be assassinated in an act of political revolt. Now, this sounds like all sorts of craziness happening on, but the reality is daily life in the empire is actually pretty calm during all of this. There's turnover going on in the leadership, and the last bit of turnover is the revolt that overthrows Labishi Marduk installs a wealthy man, not of royal blood, not even ethnically Babylonian, to the throne. This man would be the man named Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus is going to come to the throne, and he's going to do something that will cause some tension for especially some of the uh, Babylonian clergy. You see, Babylon worships, and in in, in chief of their pantheon of gods is Marduk. 
Nabonidus is going to come to the throne, and he's all about worshiping the moon god, Sin. What an apt name for a false god. He's going to be all out. He's going to, he's going to restore temples to sin. He's going to shift what the worship is. And, and, and Nabonidus, in doing this, is going to also have some other strange things about him. He's going to spend most of his reign not in Babylon, but 500 miles to the south in Tema. He's not even going to be present in the capital city. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to leave his son, Belshazzar, to act as king for the empire while he is away. And remember, if today you can govern the country from anywhere in the world, we're talking pre-snail mail back in those days takes a little bit for communications to happen. You've got to have somebody right then and there. And so Belshazzar is the one ruling on the throne. And, and all of this is going on. You have some major uh, shakeups geopolitically. To the north of the Babylonian empire are, are the Persians and the Medes. And these two different groups will merge into one empire, initially supported by the Babylonians. They will go and, and, and begin to attack some areas over to the west, over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And in those attacks, they're going to attack allies of Babylon, which sets Babylon on notice. Maybe these aren't our friends. And so on the 11th of October, the 11th of October... In 539 B.C., 50 miles north of Babylon, Nabonidus will come back as king. He will lead the Babylonian troops near, the, near the, the town of Sippar. He will lead them into battle against the Persians, and they will be royally defeated. The Babylonian troops will retreat 50 miles to Babylon, and Nabonidus will now flee permanently. And as the Babylonian troops retreat, the Persian armies come in and surround Babylon, and that is where chapter 5, verse 1 picks up. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, or, or more so, when, when Belshazzar got drunk, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, uh, more likely uh, his grandfather via a, a Nabonidus marrying into the royal family. So in this relation to Nebuchadnezzar, his father had taken out of the temple which is in Jerusalem so that his kings, his nobles, the king, his nobles, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines drank. They drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here's what you've got going on. The true emperors fled, which is not that different for the city. Belshazzar, who's really the number two guy, but the one who acts really is leading the, the empire, uh, they're surrounded by the Persians and they're having a massive feast. He says, man, open up open up the wine cellars, let's, let's bring in all the nobles, bring in all my wives, concubines, we're going to have a party in the temple. Now, at first you may go, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because you and I aren't living in Babylon. 
You see, the city of Babylon was a marvel of architecture and military defense. It had both outer and inner walls such that it had suburbs that were outside the inner city, but inside the walls. Its walls were known for being, for being tens upon tens of feet thick. Some of the walls were so wide, chariots could ride across the tops of them. Towers 100 feet high, multiple gates. Their walls were virtually impenetrable. Not only that, but if you sieged a city, how, how are you going to conquer someone who's being sieged? You're just going to wait till their water and food supplies dwindles. Oh, but Babylon is literally built across the Euphrates River. They won't run out of water. And they've been preparing for years for a siege. They've got all sorts of food stacked up. You see, if you're living in Babylon right now, what you're realizing if you're Belshazzar is this may be it. Nabonidus has fled. This is my shot to show the rulership. There's no way the Persians are breaking into the city. We've got it. We're just going to wait them out. Let's have a party. Now, it's also, part, part, it's also, from what we understand from history, likely that this wasn't just any party, but it was some kind of religious festival, perhaps swinging religious worship back to the patron deity of Babylon, Marduk. And it went beyond just just the king and his nobles, what was spread out into the city. But we see this picture. And in the midst of this, this festival, the celebration, the king gets enough tipsy that he decides to cross lines not even Nebuchadnezzar would cross. Nebuchadnezzar pillaged God's temple. He took holy vessels and he put them in the temple of Marduk. We know that from chapter one. But Nebuchadnezzar never used those. And not only that, but as God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar, the result of the fiery furnace incident of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar gives word in the empire, no one except upon penalty of death is to do anything that is dishonoring to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So no one's ever touched these things. Well, here comes Belshazzar, little tipsy, arrogant, wants to throw the grandest party of them all, and they go and they take those instruments that were once used in the worship and the sacrificial system and of the Old Testament and the worship of God at His temple, and they begin to use them as tools for a party. Not only that, they begin to sing praises in worship, giving the doxologies of their false gods, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And in the midst of this, look what happens. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand of the, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back, of the, the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, all the color washed out. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack, or literally his loins loosed. Some have even translated, he soiled his pants. And his knees began knocking together. Now, that is an apt description from somebody who is in complete and total terror at what they're seeing. The king called aloud. He said, bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. Bring in all of the people who, who we've already seen fail over and over again. And Daniel says, bring them all in. The king spoke and said to them, and I'm going to summarize it here. Basically, if you can tell me what the inscription written on the wall means... I'm going to clothe you in royal clothing. I'm going to make you a millionaire, and you'll be the third most powerful person in the empire. And I go, why third? Because at this point, Belshazzar's two. So he can't promise two or one. He can promise three. You can be the third most powerful. 
And then it says this, then the king's wise men came in, verse 8, but they could not read the inscription or make it known. And it says then in verse 9, Belshazzar became even more panicked. So he sees this hand there. He's up on a platform in the throne room. Thousand, I mean, think, think, of it, think of it like we are right now. I'm up on a platform. You can see me and all of a sudden I see a hand appear and start to write on the back wall and it terrifies me and you see this, this absolute panic wash over my body. We call in all of the scholars, the best there are and hey, translate this, tell us what it means and nobody can do it. He becomes even more panicked. So then it says this, word is spreading throughout the palace rather quickly. The queen entered, and by queen, we know, we know uh, digging down, it's really talking about the queen mother. So Belshazzar's mom enters the banquet hall because of the words of his kings and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination and sight and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And she goes on to say, this man is Daniel. Now you see, you say, what happens to Daniel? I thought if he was already over these wise people, why didn't he come in? Well, remember, it's been 23 years. There's been all sorts of leaders come to the throne, assassinated, come to the throne, die, come to the throne, assassinated. One of several things has likely happened to Daniel, either... By this point, he's likely in his early 80s, by the way, and that's if he was taken at the age of 16 from Jerusalem. He's in his late 70s, early 80s. Likely, he's retired. It's possible he was pushed out to the side. Regardless, uh, he is not an official that Belshazzar has had any, any interaction with. And so his mom comes in and says, hey, hey, calm down, young whippersnapper. You've got a guy you just need to call him. His name's Daniel. He, back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, he could do what no one else could. And so here comes Daniel, the servant of the Lord, who stood for the Lord faithfully as a teenager, and who, though he may be politically retired by this point in his 80s, we need to all remember, if you're a servant of the Lord, you never retire until God takes you home. Amen. He steps back up to the plate, and it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? It takes a little bit of a shot at him. Are, are you that Daniel? Not are you the Daniel who was once number two in the land at my spot. Are you that Daniel who was an exile? And he tells him, look, I, I, I've heard that you can interpret things. None of my guys can do it, but I've heard that you're able to do it. And if you do it, I'll make you number three in the kingdom. I'll, I'll clothe you in royal clothing. I'll give you money. So drop down with me to verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts, keep them for yourself, give your rewards to somewhere else. God can't be bought and I won't be as his servant, just chunk that out. However, I will read the inscription to the king and, and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which God bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before Nebuchadnezzar. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. And whoever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was disposed from the royal throne 
and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of the beasts, and his dwelling place was like that of the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched in dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whom he wishes. Here's what he does. Here comes Daniel. He finds himself in all too familiar of a situation. There's been a revelation of God. There's a frightened and frustrated ruler. All of the ruler's counselors are inept and can't handle it. And here comes the cast-off Hebrew boy, one of the exiles, a servant of the Most High God. And he enters into the situation, and before even telling him what the inscription means, he gives him a little bit of a history lesson. And he proceeds everything we just read to, to summarize and tell Belshazzar all that happened. Look, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler Babylon's ever known. His authority only came about because God let him have it. He had an authority greater than anything you've ever sniffed at, Belshazzar. And yet God humbled him. Yet, verse 22, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. He said, Belshazzar, you know everything I've just told you. You see, you want me to come in and just simply tell you what the words mean. I'm here to tell you why you're in the situation you're in. You're in the situation you're in because you have access to truth that there is one God who is sovereign, most high, whom your father, Nebuchadnezzar, even admitted was the one true God. You saw how he, he not only gave Nebuchadnezzar dreams and, and only interpreted them through his own servants, he not only rescued his own people from the fire of furnace, but he struck Nebuchadnezzar mad, and only upon Nebuchadnezzar's repentance was sanity returned to him. You know this, yet your knowledge has done nothing to touch your action. And he says, but you have, ex instead, I don't know, have you not humbled yourself? You have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've brought the vessels of his house before you, your nobles, your wives, and concubines. You've been drinking wine from them. You've been praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, they do not hear, and they don't understand a word you're saying because they're dead. But the one true God in whose hands are your life breath and all your ways, you've not glorified. Because here's the reason you're in the situation. You've ignored truth. You've failed to humble yourself. In fact, in your arrogance and pride, you've exalted yourself against the Most High God. So the hand was sent from God and the inscription was written. Now this is what the inscription was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin, or your may, yours may say Perez. This is the interpretation of the marriage. So there's the message. So there's four words, the first two repeated, and then two more written out. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Numbered, numbered. He's numbered the beginning, he's numbered the end. The days of Babylon have, have arrived at their completion. Tekel, you, Belshazzar, you, you personally have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. You've been examined and found to have fallen short from God's standard. Perez, your kingdom, a word that means to half, to divide something, your kingdom will be divided and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. 
Here's what he says. Those words, this is what they mean, Belshazzar. The days of Babylon are over. You've been weighed and found lacking, and all your kingdom and all your wealth and all your power are about to be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, you notice Daniel, when called upon, and you can just imagine the tension. Quiet, just like now. Deathly quiet. As this holy man proceeds to look at the king in front of all the elite of society. That probably happened too. Y'all hear that rumbling? Check, check. Am I still on? Okay, all right. All the elite of society are listening as Daniel proceeds to tell them, your country's doomed. You're done. You're about to be conquered. He doesn't do it angry. He doesn't do it and going, yeah, you punk, you're about to get what you deserve. I've never liked you. (laughs) He's honest. He's respectful. But he tells them the truth in crystal clear clarity. And then this is what happens. Belshazzar gave orders. Belshazzar just doesn't get it at all. He gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, they put a necklace of gold around his neck, and they issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar doesn't humble himself. He doesn't try to cry out one last time. Belshazzar goes, oh, thanks for telling me. Appreciate it. All right, clothe this man and give him his reward. And in the irony of Scripture... That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. You see, here's what history tells us. Why the Babylonians were all in there partying, why the elite and the nobles were up in the throne room having a a, a drunken fest and, and a celebration rippled out into the streets. Here's what the Persians were doing. They weren't sitting idly by. They weren't drawing up new plans to how to... Here's what they did. They began to dig, and they dug a trench to divert the water flow of the Euphrates River, dropping the water level down to thigh-high water they could walk through. They proceeded to walk under the river gates, and because of the arrogance of Babylon, they found no one on guard. If there had been just a, a few people on guard, they would have routed the Persian army because of how a, much of a disadvantage the position was. But the Persian army came in in silence, spills out into the surrounding suburbs, takes the entire outer portion of Babylon, and history records the inside of the city didn't even know the Persians were there. And that night, without a single drop of blood except for Belshazzar's, Persia conquers all of Babylon. And all of a sudden, the story now moves to the Persian Empire, and Babylon comes to its prophesied doom. Now, you may ask, why, why the story? What's the point? Why, why is it laid in there? Why does Daniel record this? Why the jump? Why all the intention? We don't know tons about Belshazzar, but we know he was proud. We know he was arrogant. We know he refused to act on what he knew. And even at the end, he still is clueless, and he comes to his end. Why all of this? 
Church family, we need to understand there is a truth about our God. He will not be mocked. He is faithful and true to His Word, and He will, in fact, judge the pride of human arrogance. God will not be mocked. Understand, church family, He is the Most High. We've seen this all throughout Daniel. He's the sovereign Lord of history, the ruler of that which is seen and unseen. We know from Scripture, Galatians 6 says, make no mistake, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. We know from Psalm chapter 2 and, and other Psalms as well that it's the nations make their plans. They come up with their battle arrangements. They, 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 they seek to desecrate and speak against God, and God hears from heaven and laughs because of the foolhardiness of their plans. You see, what for us may seem for a moment like sinfulness and wickedness triumphs, we must not forget God is patient, and the delay in seeing His justice is not somehow His approval of what's going on. He's just. He will act. He will not be mocked. He will put down wickedness, which is right in line to what He says. God will be faithful and true to His Word. I'll remind you, it was just over, almost a year ago, we walked through the little book of Habakkuk. And if you remember Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet says, Lord, your people, the people of Judah, we are so wicked, and it seems like you're not doing anything to deal with us. And God said, oh, I'm about to. I'm going to send Babylon to bring you into exile. And remember Habakkuk said, oh, God, Babylon, we're bad, but they're, they're way, we're, the, we're, 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 in, we're in the deep end of the adult pool. They're in the diving pool. They're horrible. And God said, you're right. and I will deal with their wickedness too. You can go over to Isaiah chapter 21, and God speaks in Isaiah chapter 21, hundreds of years prior, that God would deal with Babylon and bring an end to their reign. We know from Jeremiah, before Babylon's ever even taken over, Jeremiah prophesies in Jeremiah 51 and says, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. At the time it is stamped firm, Yet in a little while, the harvest will come for her. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel. The Lord declares, I will punish Babylon's idols. I will mortally wound and it will groan throughout her land. Should Babylon, though Babylon sins to the heavens, though she should fortify her lofty stronghold, from me destroyers, destroyers will come to her. The destroyer's coming against her. Her mighty men will be captured, her bows shattered, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will fully repay. Now listen, this is years prior before Babylon's ever even come and taken Judah. Listen to what he says. God says, I will make her princes and her wise men drunk. Her governors, her prefects, her mighty men, they will sleep a perpetual sleep. The broad wall of Babylon will be completely raised, her gate set on fire. Here's why I read this to you, church family. Here's what we see. God is the God who's faithful and true to His Word. He was faithful and true to His Word to bring judgment upon Babylon and to judge its wickedness. He was also, we've already seen this in Daniel, faithful and true to His Word. I read you during the welcome. For I will be with you when you pass through the waters. I will be with you in the fire and you will not be scorched. I will redeem you. I will restore you. You see, God's up to something much bigger with Daniel and, and, the, and his people there in Babylon. He is seeking to refine, to pull the impurity of idolatry out. He is bringing about a restoration to send them back to the promised land. Oh, by the way, whom Isaiah 
in Isaiah 44 and chapter 45, a restoration that God says will come about through the hands of His chosen instrument, Cyrus, king of Persia. You see, God is faithful and true to His Word. He's faithful and true to His Word to bring justice upon that which is unjust, to bring righteousness upon that which is sinful. He's faithful and true to His Word to preserve His people, to protect His people, to provide for His people, to raise His people up for the sake of His glory. He's true to His Word. And, and church family, understand, if we know and we see that He is true to His Word, that does God still care about justice? Yes. He does. We also understand that He is faithful and true to His Word to judge all sin and wickedness, to return and set things right and anew. 1 Thessalonians 5 and Matthew 24 both speak of the coming day of the Lord, which will be like a thief in the night, where people will be going around saying, peace, prosperity, all is well. Jesus says, in those days, they'll be, they'll be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage as if nothing is going on, and then I will come. See, Babylon is interesting. Here in Daniel 5, we find the literal Babylon, which has its roots. Rewind the story of Scripture back to Genesis 10. And that rebel and leader of sin named Nimrod in the actions at the Tower of Babel where man tries to assert what he believes is his godhood. Babel, Babylon has always stood quite literally and metaphorically as being opposed to God and His ways and His purposes, which is why we find when you move to the New Testament, Babylon no longer referring to the literal city of Babylon, but to a system of satanic and demonic influence to woo and mislead human beings, to walk in a way that is completely and totally set against the one true God, His will, His purpose, and His ways. And it's this Babylon of our day that sets the stage for people to follow wholesale into the Antichrist. And it is the Babylon of this day that Jesus says in Revelation he will return and absolutely destroy. You see, church family, if we're going to hold fast to Jesus, being faithful, living in a society that, that, that is like exile in a hostile world, if we're going to hold fast, we have got to know that our God, he's not just sovereign, but he is the sovereign Lord who does in fact bring justice upon sin. And he is faithful to his word. You see, church family, no matter how bad our days are, no matter how days, bad our days may get, we don't have to look for a new handwriting on the wall as to whether or not it'll stop. We have something better than the handwriting on the wall. We have Calvary's cross and the empty tomb. He's done what he said he would do, which means he will do what he says he will do. And if we really understand that, church family, then there's something we're going to have to do. We're going to have to humble ourselves, heeding the warnings of His Word and resisting the siren song of this culture. We're going to have to humble ourselves, and humbling ourselves, we recognize God for who He is. He is the one true God. He is who He is. He is who He is as He says He is. 
Our opinion doesn't determine who he is, who we think he is. Our opinions are irrelevant. We don't decide who Jesus is. Listen, Belshazzar heard the truth from a cast-off Jew of the God he despised. And Scripture tells us today the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, to the Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Some can no more accept a crucified Messiah than we can accept the idea of clean filth or delicious vomit. A cursed Messiah isn't a saving Messiah to the Jews. They want a mighty man, not a mangled man. The Greeks want God to fit their expectation, to, to, to win over their vote. The Jews want mightiness, the Greeks want style. Jews are interested in power, Greeks in packaging. Jews focus on force, Greeks finesse. For the Jews, the cross lacks punch. For the Greeks, for the Gentiles, it makes no sense. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek seek wisdom. Americans want therapy, but we preach Christ the crucified one. You see, understand today, church family, we're not so different from Belshazzar because our only hope, whether you are in this room or watching online, saved by grace, or whether you go, I don't know Jesus Christ, but I'm sure I'm interested. Listen, there is only one hope, and it was a cast-off Jewish man, the Son of God that the world despises. And we don't decide who He is. He is who He is, and humility submits to who He is, how He says He is. It submits to how He reveals Himself. Listen, sometimes God doesn't necessarily, God's aim, I read someone this week that said, sometimes God seems to work like your lawnmower going out and you call for help and a manicurist shows up. (laughs) When Israel cries out, God, we've got this problem, we need deliverance, God doesn't raise up a warrior, he sends a prophet. Because when they're looking for a solution, God wants us to understand how we even got into the problem. We don't get to decide how God reveals. He simply reveals Himself. We need to understand the why. And in humility, we heed the warnings of God's Word. Listen, church family, if we're committed to Him, then we are committed to His Word. You cannot divorce who Jesus is from what He said. No more than you can divorce in some ways who we are from what we say. What did Jesus say? We say what? What overflows out of our heart. Jesus is not different from His Word, as if His Word says one thing, but Jesus is really another. No. We have, if we are with Jesus, we are with to His Word. We stand, if we are in Christ, where He stands. We stand how He stands, and we stand where He stands on all issues, regardless of popularity. It means we have to respond and yield to the Word, especially when it calls us out and offends us. If the Word says something I'm doing is sin, then I have to pay attention and humble myself and say, God, you're right, that's sin. If God says, you have raised and exalted yourself up against me in your pride, then our job is not to say, but how, Lord? It's to say, yes, Lord, you're right, and I am sorry. And it's, it's to do it no matter how it comes. It may be as you're reading the Word. God convicts you. It may be as you hear the Word preached or taught, God convicts you. It may be as you're walking around and the Holy Spirit convicts you with the Word from within. It doesn't matter how He convicts you with the Word. Our response is to submit. It also means we have a responsibility to tell the truth about who He is. 
It's a lie to look at Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and say, oh, everything's okay. If we really love this world, we have a responsibility in the kindness and gentleness of respect and grace to speak with clarity and faithfulness to what our Lord says. See, if we humble ourselves, we recognize God for who He is. If we humble ourselves, we heed the warnings of His Word. If we humble ourselves, we set ourselves to resist the siren song of this world. Everything about this world in our culture is arrogant and proud. And I don't mean that to be pestering or ugly. I just mean we live in a world, remember the core of pride is eyes focused on me, myself, and I. It can be arrogant and boastful, or it can be woeful, but it's set, eyes set. Listen, humility sets eyes on Jesus. In humility, we submit to Jesus' word. When we resist Jesus and His word, we are by default setting our eyes on ourselves, and we are by default walking in our own arrogance and pride, no matter how nice a person we may be. You can be nice and arrogant. You can be nice in this world and exalt yourself against the Most High God. Our culture preaches the word, do what makes you happy. Believe and justify what makes you feel good. It's okay for theology to evolve to fit the desires of our day. Just forget the past and the warnings that are there that validate the word. And listen, church family, you can twist any Bible verse you want to justify your sin. Satan's been doing it since Genesis 3. The question is not, can I find a Bible verse to justify what I want? The question is, what does that Bible verse actually mean? And if it tells me what I want is wrong, will I submit to him? Listen, there is a seductiveness to the arrogance of our culture. That's why I called it the siren song. It is tempting when you and I look out and we see a world where things against God's word are popularized and and attention is given and success is given to people and and all these things are there and and, and we look around and we go, well, I don't don't smell any smoke and I don't see any fire and brimstone falling, so so it must be okay. Oh, listen, that, that, wow, that person makes a really compelling case for why what I want I should have. Listen. Satan doesn't mask around as a hideous monster. He masks around as an angel of light to seduce, to ensnare, to give what you think is going to be a diamond ring that forever fulfills you only to discover it's a poison of cancer that will slowly rot and steal everything God wants from you or for you. We find a perfect example of this kind of arrogance and pride in Belshazzar. Belshazzar lived confident in his own power. That's why he and the Babylonians are surrounded by an invading army, and they don't even bother to have guards on the walls. Our city's in prison. No one can get in. We've built this. It's the best. We're going to be okay. Evidence didn't matter to them. They just believed that their own in- intelligence, that their own power would be what saves them. Church family, I got news for you. If, if we're living on our intellect and our power and our might, we will fall. We find Belshazzar exalted himself against God by taking that which is holy to engage in that which is demonic. 
He took holy vessels of worship and used it to sing praises and offer sacrifices to pagan gods. And church family, we can do the same thing because no longer does God's holy vessels of worship exist in use of a temple. What does the New Testament tell us? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yet we'll willingly and find excuses to sit and watch shows with absolute filth and nudity, to listen to music and watch things filled with all sorts of profane languages, yet we'll find ways to do what we want with our sexuality and experience. We'll find ways, go on down the line. I can just pick any passage of sin out. Don't think for a second, church family, oh man, I, I, would never, I would never take God's vessels and fill them full of wine and get drunk praising other gods. We do it all the time. And we're blind to it. We see Belshazzar refused to humble his heart by failing to act on knowledge of the truth. Church family, there is a danger in the life of our lives of unapplied knowledge. Possessing knowledge of the truth doesn't guarantee a correct response. Data doesn't bring about change. Knowledge is not the problem. Heeding truth and obeying is the problem. Worship is the issue. Education alone doesn't bring about transformation. You and I can know plenty of Scripture. We can be an an excellent Bible scholar and yet live lives far from God because in our own pride, we know what the Word says, but we're not going to do it. We know the Word says pray, but we're not going to pray. We know the Word says submit, but we're not going to submit. We know what the Word... We can go on and on and on with examples of things we've read in the Word, things we've heard the pastor preach, things we know are true, but we refuse to ever do anything with it. That is exactly what Belshazzar did. He knew what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar sent out and said about the one child. He knew all of it. The problem wasn't that he didn't know. The problem is he didn't care. And church family, we can do the same thing in foolhardiness. I don't know that Belshazzar set out that night to to try to profane God. The reality is he got drunk and he made dumb decisions. Church family, you and I can drink the, the wine of this world and eat the king's food of this world just like Daniel and the guys were tempted to in chapter one. And if we do it, we can set ourselves up in prize against God, not intentionally, but just because we're being foolhardy. You can do it in foolhardiness. You can also do it intentionally. At some point, Belshazzar is confronted with the truth, and it, it still doesn't matter. You can do it in a foolhardy way. You can do it intentionally. And understand, church family, there is a call that goes out today. There is a call, if you are in Christ, to see where we are proud and arrogant and to repent and respond to His glory. God is patient. We saw that last week. He is very patient with us in our sin, but here's the reality. We don't know when his patience stops and when it's time for him to bring in discipline. God will expose the the uselessness of our idols. Our job is to respond. There's some in here today, if you don't know Christ, understand God is patient with you. God desires that you would come to faith in Christ that you would respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to the knowledge that He is the one true God and the only one who can satisfy your soul. 
And you can know it and have heard that message all day long, but if you don't choose to ever cry out in faith and believe it, understand you await a terrifying danger. Because there is a point when God stops being patient and where justice comes in. So there is a call today to both lost and saved to respond in obedience. The lost in faith in Christ, the saved to respond in humility and submission to Him. On August 12, 1944, a PB-24 liberator experimental plane designed to be loaded with high explosives and then directed to a target via remote control after the pilot and co-pilot bailed was scheduled to take off. But there was a problem before the time to depart. An electronics officer warned the pilot that, that there was an interference in that trying to, to uh, the device that was to be used to, to detonate the the explosives was faulty, and so anything, a radio static, a jamming device, turbulence could set off the explosion before the crew could bail out. The officer urged the pilot not to go through with the mission. The pilot ignored the warning and flew anyways. And that day at 6.20 p.m. over England, Joe Kennedy Jr. and his crew died in an explosion in that plane not because they didn't have the knowledge, but because they knew the knowledge and failed to act. Church family, may we not be guilty of possessing the knowledge of God and failing to act while we sing the praises of the gods of this world. Because He is just. He is faithful and true. May we be found at his feet. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you today. And Lord, there's not one of us. I am not exempt from having areas of my life where I am proud, where I am arrogant. And I am blind and obstinate to the truth. Lord, and I am grateful that in our lives you are patient with us. And you convict. Sometimes you move fast. Sometimes you move slow. You always move in the life of your children for good. And Father, we acknowledge we live in a world that has a very seductive call to sin. That promises that if we will just go after what your word forbids, that it will bring fulfillment and satisfaction. And certainly for a temporary while, Lord, you know there will be some emotional delight. Meanwhile, it begins to kill us from within. For us as children of God to bring disruption in our fellowship with you. For those who aren't in Christ to just bring absolute death and destruction and only further harden their hearts to you. So Jesus, help us see clearly today. Lord, show, our, show us, help us to see where we know your truth but haven't cared like we ought to. And Lord, let us hold out in hope knowing that, 
you are a God who is faithful and true to your word. And everything we suffer in the humility of walking with you in exile in this world, Lord, you will deal with the injustice of this world and you will reward the faithfulness of your children. So Jesus, we respond to you. As you stir our hearts, find us walking in your footsteps. It's in your name we pray.